Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Rico, and welcome to another Thursday evening uh, edition of Golf Talk Live. It's May 5th, already into the first week of, of May, hard to believe. Um, year, I don't know where the year's going, but it seems to be uh, traveling quite quick, so uh, we'll, we'll hopefully uh, slow things down a little bit and, and enjoy our summer uh, before we get back into uh, a few uh, winter months. It just seems like we got out of winter, and now here we are uh, already into uh, well into spring and on our way into summer. But anyways, enough of that. I've got a great show for you tonight. I've uh, got a great guest. I'm doing a little bit of a special coach's corner tonight. I've got a very special guest coming on here in just a moment, uh, Tim Kramer. He's actually been on the show a number of times before, uh, both as a guest and also as a panelist on the show. And uh, he, of course, is the president and founder of Spirit of Golf uh, LLC. We'll, I'll do a little more intro here in just a second. But let me remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, for those of you on the East Coast, and I think it's four to six on the Pacific Coast. Uh, so thank you for joining us live. If you want to find out where the link is, um, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, or you can just go to blogtalkradio.com and just type in uh, golf talk live up in the search key, and that will take you to the main page. And as I said, Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, Central, we are live. But for some reason, if you're not able to join us on the live broadcast, uh, not to worry. Uh, you can go to that link that I just mentioned and scroll down to the on-demand section as all of the shows, of course, are auto-recorded, so you can listen to them uh, when it's convenient for your schedule. I always uh, invite you, encourage you to uh, call in and speak with the guests. Uh, If you'd like, the number is area code 646-716-4667. That's 646-716-4667. would love to hear from you. Uh, You can also email questions or comments to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And if you're somebody that's in the golf profession, whether you're a teacher professional, uh, coach, or somebody uh, in the business side of golf, and you want to come on and share um, some of your thoughts and input about uh, what you're doing to help uh, grow this game, I'd love to hear from you as well. And you can reach out to me if you'd like to be a guest on the show at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And as most of you know that have been tuning in for a while, I update everything on social media. So if you go to Facebook, go to the Facebook page, excuse me, Golf Talk Live blog. Make sure you have blog on the end there. And uh, the shows are updated every week. And if you want to leave a comment there or, or uh, have a question, you can certainly leave it. I check it every day, so uh, please do so. And also on my Twitter handle at Ted and Buck CEO, and CEO of course is in capital letters. Um, again, I also post everything through uh, Twitter as well, and, and of course I do it on LinkedIn as well. Um, but uh, thank you for all the new followers recently on both Facebook and Twitter, and also on LinkedIn. I appreciate it as always. A little bit later in the show, I'm going to be joined by. Uh, a, a young lady who has uh, reached out to me here a little while ago. Her name is Claudia uh, Mizuko. She's a golf historian, writer, and researcher. And uh, she uh, put together a great book called The uh, Legendary Lessons, uh, 100 
teachings, if you will, from some of the greats of the game, Walter Hagen, uh, and just an endless number of some of the greats uh, from back in the day. She, as I said, she's a golf historian, and she's originally from uh, Argentina and uh, now resides here, in, I believe, in the Connecticut area. But she's going to be joining me in the second hour talking a little bit about her book and a little bit of her background. Uh, she's actually got quite an extensive background, so I hope you'll join us for that. And uh, as I said, uh, always uh, glad to have uh, my panelists here. And tonight I've got a, a great panel uh, of, uh, of one, actually, Mr. Tim Kramer. Let me just tell you a little bit more about him, and then I'll bring him on to join us in the conversation. Uh, as I mentioned, Tim Kramer is the president and founder of Spirit of Golf, LLC. Uh, he's a visionary peak performance coach and consultant based out of Stewart, Florida. Uh, his program actually utilizes innovative and pioneering mind-body uh, coaching techniques that have helped participants, both athletes and non-athletes, uh, athlete, excuse me, uh, access peak mind states for greater success and joy in both golf and life. And it's through his spirit of golf that he uh, conducts many workshops and clinics throughout the country and works also privately with uh, a number of athletes. We're going to talk about one here in just a moment uh, on most of the major golf tours. He's an author, uh, lecturer, and national uh, keynote speaker. And he's been uh, selected to, he actually was selected to speak at the 2013 uh, PJ Teaching and Coaching Summit and has presented before athletic, educational, and corporate and not-for-profit organizations as well, inspiring both, uh, again, athletes and non-athletes alike uh, with the message that he shares. So without further hesitation, let me bring on my very special guest on the Coach's Corner panel tonight, Mr. Tim Kramer. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me again. You, you've, well, you're quite welcome. You, we, we've got to figure out how to – you've got too many accolades, Tim, and I've got to try to figure a way to edit all that down. You've just got too many great great points to make, and I want to make sure I get them in, of course, all the time well, uh, as best, as best yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 you know, much appreciated, but maybe greatly overstated. But, you know, we're very fortunate to be in this sport having fun with what we do, and uh, I certainly feel very appreciative of, of being on your show but also able to work with the athletes and uh, – it really is a wonderful life. It, it is a lot of fun. And, you know, it, it really goes back to that saying, uh, I, I think if you do really love and enjoy um, what it is that you're doing, uh, whether you want to call it an occupation or not, um, it doesn't feel like a job, does it? It, it does not at all. I was talking with a, um, I was talking with a pro tonight, this evening, uh, a couple hours ago or whatever, and we're talking about uh, what we'll be talking about, I'm sure, in a little, little while, mm-hmm. which is Jim Herman. But uh, Jim's success in the Shell Houston Open, Jim is is one of my students, and and uh, just how rewarding it is to to see these these players um, really achieve their dreams in ways that uh, you know you've contributed to that journey. And and certainly, <laughs> I'm the first to say I, I I was not swinging the club. But to be able to be part of that journey is, is sure. you know, it's so rewarding because this is what, you know, they, they, they really, um, uh, this is their passion and their dream. And to help them achieve that is, uh, it's extremely rewarding no matter what part of that you're, you're on. Yeah, and, and you raise a good point, and we're, we're going to talk about Jim here in just a second. Um, you, you raise a really interesting point because it's true. You, I mean, you may not be the person, the architect, if you will, swinging the club uh, around the golf course, um, but you do play a, a key and integral role, a role excuse me, in, in helping um, you know, players like Jim have success out on the golf course because you know, it, it's not just a matter of having a great golf swing and, and, and good ball striking. There's a lot of other components as well to being a, an athlete and a great player, and this is something that you specialize in that maybe he doesn't, and this is where he draws from your experience and your expertise uh, to be able to help him navigate around the course from an emotional and a, and a – 
you know, a mental standpoint as well. So let's talk about him. Obviously, as you mentioned, it's very exciting to have uh, one of your students uh, have success on the PGA Tour. Of course, you're talking about the Shell Houston Open. That was just, uh, I believe, the week before the Masters, so he was successful in, yeah. in winning that. Um, pretty exciting. What, what, what were your first – tell me, before you get into the story about uh, that, tell me what were your first words to him were. Uh, obviously, congratulations, but what were your first words to him? Well, just how impressed I was. Um, for those who saw the tournament, uh, uh, the 18th. Well, first of all, he chipped in for um, for birdie on the 16th hole on a on a, th- on a three par, and he's been working very mindfully on his uh, on his short game for for some time, uh, and that's just exciting to see. But what impressed me the most was there was a backup on the 18th hole, and and he stood on the tee for for I guess seven or eight minutes before he could even hit his drive, and then. Uh, water all the way down the left side and, and, and bunkers all the way down the right side. And, and he just stood up there and absolutely, he just, you know, pipes it 320 yards down the middle of the fairway. And uh, it, it didn't surprise me, but at the yeah. same time, I was probably more nervous than he was. I mean, I'm just sitting there and, <laughs> and yet to see, to see him do it um, is just that that's what's so rewarding and to see him calmly do it and, and then step up and win the tournament. Um, uh, this was his first time in the final group, and and uh, I was talking with some people. I I don't know how many people uh, on the tour, how many guys on the tour have ever won their first event the first time they're in a final group. I mean, most of the time there's a there's a learning curve there and a and a growth curve because they do get very very nervous, and he just he really handled it like a champ, and and that's what I was so happy for him. Uh, it didn't surprise me, but again, it's just it's it's so rewarding to see that work pay off. You know, and and it's interesting, just for, for those that are tuning in that maybe, uh, you know, don't understand really how big of a deal that is, you know, when you've got a time delay, you know, they, they're thinking, you know, going through their heads that, well, seven minutes isn't very long. It is when you're in the heat of the battle and you're, you're standing oh, yeah. on a tee, seven minutes seems like an eternity because really there's a lot of possibilities that can take them out of their rhythm. Um, it can be a distraction in many ways. Uh, obviously, yeah. these yeah. guys and gals that are at this level – um, have very good mental focus, but at the same time, even they can sometimes be de- derailed um, from their thought process uh, w- with too much. In fact, there's been many players over the years, um, Rory Sabatini comes to mind, where slow play has actually agitated them so much that they actually become right. very angry and, and, right. and understandably so agitated. They're playing for a lot of money, the bottom line is they're playing for a lot sure. of money, they're playing for the win. And so for whatever the reasons may be, um, you know, when you're delayed seven, eight, ten minutes on a tee, especially on 18, the, the you know, the Sunday of, of the tournament, um, that's a big deal. Well, it, it is very potentially a big deal. And, and I have to say that the, that the skill that we've worked on over the past several years has really been, uh, and Jim is so good at this, is his ability to what I call staying in the now, in the present moment. And, and, and so when he notices stories from the past, when he's dragging in old stories or he's getting too far in front of himself out in front of the future, what it may mean and whatever, he just he drops those very quickly and just goes back to uh, his breathing. His caddy is wonderful. And right. they were out there and they were smiling and, 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 you know, joking around a little bit and whatever. He stayed loose and, and he's really got an uncanny uh, ability to do that. And, um, you know, but... You can have that uncanny, uh, that ability to do that, and still doing it. That's a whole other issue too, and that's what I was so happy w- was when he just just 
did it. And uh, that's really exciting as a coach. And obviously, as a player, he was just on cloud whatever uh, the, yeah. you know, the rest of that week. Yeah. So well, it was and, cool. And, yeah, and and the reason why I wanted to point that out is because you know a, a lot of times, and I'm not talking about the, some of the critics that you see uh, um, that are in the media, but you know you, you get a lot of the, the the couch critics, as I call them, and yeah. you know they're saying, well, you know, what's the big deal and all that, but it really is a big deal when you're, you know, there's a lot of emotion that that uh, these players are expelling in a tournament to begin with, and then you add, right. uh, you know, a delay of of whatever magnitude. Uh, coming into play again it can really derail and there have been players that literally um i won't necessarily go as far as to say that they've lost a tournament but have struggled uh you know holes afterwards because of uh, those delays so um it, it is a big deal and i think people should appreciate and understand the value uh, of you know walking up to the tee and hitting it 320 yards down the middle with trouble on both sides or potential trouble on both sides um yeah. you know after having a fairly lengthy uh, delay so that that's you know, kudos to him yeah. for having the strength and, and the ability to do that, but also for you as his coach to uh, to help uh, you know work on his focus and that to be able to allow him to do that. There, there's a lot of uh, a lot of play there on both parts, so it's not just you know him swinging the club; it's what you're doing as well. Uh, I, I want to um, I want to talk about uh, a couple things here um, tonight, Tim, with you, Tim, for for a number of reasons. And as I mentioned to you off air, what I did was I of course I went to your website. Uh, myspiritofgolf.com and uh, went through some of the website and, and pulled some things I want to talk about. And the first thing I want to talk about, which was really kind of intriguing, and I want you to just kind of explain a little bit the importance of this. And some people, when they sure. first hear this paragraph, may not understand this, but I'm sure once you put it into context, it'll become abundantly clear. Uh, I took from yesterday, of course, today is the 5th of May. Uh, yesterday, the 4th of May, your thought of the day. You have one, of course, every day. Uh, and this right. one was for May 4th, 20, uh, 2016, and it starts off, and I'll read it out, and then I'll, I'll get you to respond. The trillions of cells within the body are in constant communication with each other, uh, either in a state of ease and flow or tension, resistance, and disease. As one cell relaxes, every cell relaxes. As one cell tenses, the whole body, muscles, joints, organs, etc., uh, tenses too. The missing link for most uh, is the connection between thoughts and cells, since no cell has the ability to move freely outside of the thought impulses it receives. Uh, try though we may to get physical improvement uh, on any level in, in spite of poor cellular communication, action is trumped every time uh, by attitude and belief. So explain what you mean by that first off and why is that important uh, for golfers to understand that? Yeah, well, basically what I'm saying is that it, it really, even within the context of the swing, everything is starting as an idea. The best analogy I have of that, if you if you take anything that was ever invented in humankind, uh, be it a light bulb or a table or, or the wheel or whatever, it, it always began as an idea in imagination first. Right. And it's really no different with a golf shot. I mean, we can we in we work very very diligently and mindfully on the swing, but what most people don't make the connection with, and I think there's an important reason why, but they don't make the connection of the thoughts and ideas and emotions and whatever that was kind of the energy underlying what the body did. And we get so body-focused and so swing-focused and whatever without a lot of times paying attention to the underlying stuff 
that was really allowing the body to move the way it did. And, and yeah, the, the body is set up in a way that the cells of the body literally have, have incredible intelligence and they're in constant communication with each other. So, so um, when, when any part of the body tenses up, the whole body is tensing up and, and it really um, puts the body into a state of tension and resistance as opposed to, uh, this state of ease and flow and balance that we want right. the body to be in, but that's a mental condition first. It's not like you can, you you can't put the body in there into that state without being in a good mind state first. Right, and and uh, you know I, I think it's important, and this is the reason why I copied this down and I wanted to to bring it to the audience's attention. Um, you know somebody sort of tuning in now and might hear this and say, okay, what does it matter about my cells and, you know, how does that really affect my golf swing and all sure, that? Sure, um, And And it doesn't on its own until you understand that our bodies, what we put into our bodies, what comes out of our bodies, and I don't necessarily talking about, um, you know, um, uh, what am I looking for here, the word I'm looking for, um, you know, in our well, daily function. Even. Yeah, yeah. Nutrition, but nutrition going in, but also um, – you know, there are obviously toxins come out of our body and that, but if we don't take care of ourselves, that it affects um, our mood, it affects every aspect of our lives. Oh, absolutely. And if you're, That's if you're the somebody point that, of all that. Yeah. Right. And, and if you want to, you know, be successful on the golf course, you have to take care of yourself first because you're the extension. I mean, the golf club, everybody seems to think, well, if I swing the golf club harder, if I swing it, I'm going to be a better golfer. And there is a certain element of truth to that. If you're a good ball striker, yes, it's going to help your game. But if you're out of shape, if you're lethargic and tired all the time because of poor nutrition or poor exercise, um, and you're not taking good or, or, or you know, a poor control. attitude or a poor, poor attitude, that'll drain, that'll drain you just as quick as any, anything. Right, exactly, and and I think a lot of people don't understand. They you know they go to a, a golf instructor or coach and they want them to you know fix their slice, and it's always about mechanics. It's not about what do I need to do. And and the sad part of it is, Tim, to be honest, and and I've had this discussion with many uh, other coaches and teaching pros out there. One of the biggest gripes that we have is everybody comes wanting these quick fixes, and yes. they don't want to. Uh, and it's not just a matter of putting the work in, but they don't want to really do a proper self-assessment. Say, what what can I do? They say, well, what can I do to be a better right. golfer? And you right. know, they come up with all these scenarios, and it's just not realistic. So I, I took some things from your website, and I want you to – we'll go down point by point, and I want you to sort of expand on sure. it, talk about it, what you meant by it, and then – you know, how it's sort of applicable and why it's important uh, for those that want to become a better player, whether they're an athletic uh, individual or a non-athlete. Um, awareness uh, is the first one I want to talk about. Um, why is that important? Why do we need to be aware and what do we need to be aware of? Yeah, that's a great point. What we need to be aware of in a way is our self-talk. And does our self-talk feel positive and optimistic or is our self-talk filled with, um, uh, with doubt and disbelief? Because, again, um, the self-talk is what fires up the body, including the muscles and joints of the body. So it either moves in this state of ease and flow or tension and resistance. But that, that all begins with self-talk. And if we're really not aware of the stories that we're telling ourselves, we've kind of got no shot because mm -hmm. we're just running things on autopilot 
without an awareness of how our our self talk is affecting how the body moves and our ability to uh, to uh, to swing a club to score or whatever it it really boils down to an awareness of the story that I'm telling myself right now before I'm about to hit this shot. Do I, do I feel it's believable? Do I feel it's not believable? Uh, am I doubtful? Those are energies we most of the time don't deal with because we're so busy in the mechanics of the swing. And, and Ted, right. this is not to knock the swing. I love the golf swing. I love sure. equipment. I love the golf swing. This is not that talk at all, but this is just saying you can ha- have the greatest swing in the world. And we see that on tour every yep. week. All you have to do is look down the, the, the practice range. But but it is it is making a plea for the awareness to um, what's my belief factor right now? Uh, how aware am I of my level of belief or disbelief before this shot, one at a time? You know, and this that's a great point. And, and this goes to, and you, again, you, you raise a, sort of an interesting question here. Um, you know, when you talk about going down the, the, the line of, of players uh, on any practice tee uh, at, a, at a major tournament, um, they're obviously, they all have an internal dialogue. How much does, uh, let's say for an example, a lot of players focus on, you know, if I can just make it into the top 10, are they in a sense setting yes. themselves up for failure in, in, in one aspect because they're looking at it, as long as I can get into to the top 10, I'm, I'm good for next week or I'm good for such and such. By doing that as their internal dialogue and not, you know, really looking at more positive things um, to, yeah. to energize them for that week, are they kind of in a, in a roundabout way setting themselves up for failure? Yeah, it's a great question, but to me, the, the bigger issue is is that that's pulling them out of um, the most important thing, which is the shot at hand. And so, right. more often, what I call storyland, um, we got to ask ourselves: Is that a story? And and I get away from the the terminology: Is that story good or bad, or is it right or wrong, or whatever? I like to say: Is that story helpful? Does that is that a story that really helps me? Now, if it does, then I think that's a very positive thing. But if it doesn't, and by the way, Ted, as you know, most of them don't, then I would suggest that, yes, that story has the ability to, in some ways, uh, introduce tension into the body and keep them out of a state of peak performance that they would be in if they were totally immersed in the shot at hand with no story attached. Right. And, and, and the other thing, too, that I think that, you know, our amateurs out there need to understand. Um, and I guess what I meant by that internal dialogue as well is if you go up, let, uh, give you an example. If you, an amateur goes up to the first tee and let's take that same scenario that, that Jim was. Now I know that was on 18, but, and maybe you've got some water on the left and you've got uh, a fairway bunker, what have you. And, and there might be some, you know, stream or something going across right away. The, the professionals looking, okay, where do I need to place the ball? Where do I need to position yeah. myself? to give myself the best yes. chance for the next shot. What the amateur right. uh, or high handicapper looks at, gosh, there's water on the left, there's a stream up there, there's this. Over. They're looking at the trouble, and they're not focusing on a positive. So automatically they've set themselves up for failure because they think, well, I might as well just you know, uh, pick up and, and drop it on the other side of the creek because I'm not going to be able to clear it anyways, and I'm more than likely either going to end up in the water on the left or in the bunker. So right away their internal dialogue is negative to begin with, and that's obviously going to affect them, correct? Absolutely, and and that's very much what happens. But but what I also experience in my coaching practice is that you get the players and 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 the better amateurs and whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, there's water on the right. Now I know that by I am not supposed to focus on the water on the right. I know it's there. That's fine. Right. But I know I'm not supposed to focus on it because if that's what I focus on, that's where I hit the ball. 
So I'm going right. to focus on the middle of the fairway. So they, they, they focus on the middle of the fairway, or they think they're focused on the middle of the fairway, but here's the deal, is that energetically, on, on an emotional <clears throat> level, they're still into don't hit the ball into the water. They're not really energizing like the, the touring pros do. They're not energizing middle of the fairway. They're energizing what they don't want to do. Now, they're giving lip service to don't hit it in the water, but that's not where their energy's at. So let's take that same scenario, Tim, and let's just kind of shine, if you will, the difference between a professional and an amateur. Why is a professional – What is it? in other words, what does a professional do differently than, say, the amateur given that same scenario that we just discussed? How is, how well, is he or she able yeah. to, to overcome that? Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's a lot of practice within the ability to to really stay focused on the target and but I think more importantly is the belief that they can carry it off. Um, a a highly trained professional is going to believe I think more than an amateur that they can hit it to that spot, whereas an amateur is going to kind of question uh, whether right. or not they can hit it to that spot. Now, the one thing I would add, though, is that week to week, and, and this is where I think even most of the players on the tours, um, they're not always tapped into states of belief either. I mean, they, they still sure. see water on the left side and, and, and water sure. on the right side, and, and they still, still go into fear responses too. But I would say that, that they're better some weeks and not as good other weeks. That's why certain courses set up better for them than others. But but by and large, yeah, I, I do think that we we talk about this intangible called belief and that's really where that's really where the actions at in golf is is as I stand there about to hit this ball, what do I really believe? And and if we can't get belief out in front of performance, we've 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 got a problem. Yeah, and that's not and, easy to do. No, and 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 you know what? It's understandable. Again, I think it also becomes a confidence issue. I think because the players are confident in their ball striking ability, um, yeah. they're able to be more assured of that they're going to have success. Um, you know, even if it's seven times out of ten, they're going to be able to put it in the position in the area, that, uh, spot in the fairway or uh, area of the side of the green that they want to be on, whatever the case may be. They have that confidence. True. And obviously, the, so that's, you know, there is certainly a correlation between the ball striking. You do have to be a relatively good ball striker, but at the same time, um, you know, you don't have to be a Hogan or a Sneed or, or, or any of the top players right. of today. Um, you know, as long as you can hit it, you know, for argument's sake, 150 yards relatively straight and consistently, um, you can play any golf course virtually in the world and you can, uh, you know, easily break 100 if you allow the strategy side to sort of take in and not worry about, you know, making the perfect golf swing. Uh, I want to move on oh. to, to the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say absolutely. Because, because one of the things that I've experienced with the, you know, the, the mini tour players and above and whatever, and not all of them, of course, but you know, we as spectators, oh, that course is so beautiful and it's gorgeous and this and that and whatever. And they're out there just playing connect the dots. They're, they're not yeah. into it. Now, do they appreciate the beauty? Yeah, they do. And, sure. and are they grateful and appreciative of their lives? Yeah. That's, but, but, but this is their job, and they're playing connect the dots. They're not playing uh, beauty of the golf course. They may notice yeah. it, but that's not, that's not it at all. It's like they're, they're, they're playing from point A to point, point B. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they've they mapped out, uh, you know, their trip, if you will, their navigation. Uh, you know, they've tapped yeah. into their internal navigation system and say, okay, how do I best navigate around these 18 holes? 
uh, in the least exactly. amount of strokes possible. And that's essentially what it boils down to um, in exactly. a simplest form. Yeah. And I think, and yeah. I think that they, um, their thought process is actually less than I think most amateurs in the sense that most amateurs have so many thoughts running through their mind while they're navigating around those 18 holes that it clouds the important ones that they need to have, um, you know, that internal dialogue that they need to be focusing on. And I think this, you know, too much clutter sometimes, uh, it's like a messy room. It, you know, you can't walk from point A to point B because you're tripping over, your, you know, uh, laundry hamper and all of the clothes that are whatever, <laughs> you know. And, and it's true. Well, we I mean, call, if you look at and yeah. it's, simp- and it's simplest form, that's really what they're looking at. Uh, well, and, and then Tim, it gets wanna, into this state of paralysis by analysis. I mean, they're, they're it, right. Their brain is so filled with with this could well but if this doesn't then this might yeah but i'm not so well yeah but then there was last week and before long it's just like no <laughs> this is what i want to do hit it right here that's it that's the only thing yeah. i need to be focused on and yeah. and you know the one the other thing too which is always interesting is um you know certainly professionals will make a, a change here and there but you know when a professional walks up to a, a golf shot um you know whether it be in the middle of fairway or what have you they're fairly, I would say, 99.9% confident that this is the club in their hand is what they're going to use to execute the shot. Now, occasionally, yeah. if, if you know gusts of wind are coming up, they may you know go between a, another choice. Um, but normally, most cases, they'll make a confident selection. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen uh, amateur players walk up with you know three or four clubs in their hand on a shot, and they're sitting there scratching right. their head. They don't know what to do. And again, it boils down to confidence. But again, it's because they're overthinking the process. They're not looking at okay, what is it I want to you know what's the shot I want to make? See, the professionals look at the shot. They say, this is the shot I need to make to, to do what I want it to do, um, and what club is is going to execute that properly. Whereas the amateur is sitting there thinking, well, God, you know, and they've got a thousand things going through, and they're not thinking about the shot. They're just thinking about what club should I use? I'm 150 yards away from the green, you know, and they're focusing right. on the club right. more so than what the shot is that they want to execute. Absolutely. And, and this is where I say that uh, I really encourage players to go with their initial gut impulse, their, their, uh, that that generally is the, the impulse that, that they want to stick with and you know that's the difference between listening to your gut hunches and the head and the head and the thought process you can always trick yourself into thinking something out of that gut hunch and most of the time it doesn't do you any good yeah uh, i agree uh and and this is really what i want for us to, to sort of articulate tonight and and the, one of the reasons why i wanted to take some of these points from your site because you you really sort of get into in-depth explaining and a lot of people you know, miss this. They don't understand this, and they're focused on the wrong areas of their golf game. And I think if they they focus more internally, as and, and sort of clean up that uh, house, if you will, I think they'd be more than surprised at the results they're going to get. Uh, which moves me on to the next one: mind body. Um, is, is that an energy system, as it were? Um, true or false? Is that en- uh, mind body equals energy? Is, is that true or false? Well, yeah, very true. That that basically what the the newest stuff is saying is that the mind is the same as the body, and the body has an intelligence uh, not unlike the mind. That it's really one system, and it's the energy of the system. That that we in the past we used to think that the mind was in some ways separate than the body, and there's still that that implication is that how the body moves is how the body moves, and well, then of course we've got the thoughts, but now it's really saying it's all one coordinated system, and this is a little bit too 
where we get into uh, cellular intelligence. And, and by cells, right. we could talk about body or you could talk about muscles or you could talk about joints or you could talk about whatever, but just that they're moving most efficiently when the thoughts and emotions are in sync with how the body's moving. And so just to look at it as a coordinated system, a mind-body system or a body-mind system that, that you know, the body has intelligence and, and, and the intelligence is not just limited to the mind. Right, right, The body exactly. actually has an intelligence of its own, you know, that's, that's very much in sync with the whole thing as a system. Yeah, uh, well said. Um, law of attraction uh, kind of goes to what we've been talking about here, but maybe explain a little bit more um, what you mean by law of attraction uh, and why is that important? You know, is it what, yeah. what's coming out of our mouth, yeah. the thoughts that are in our head, um, yeah. If they're negative yeah. coming out, is that attracting sort of negative responses and so forth? Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, yeah. The you know the the one thing uh, several years ago, the movie came out called The right. Secret, and a follow-up movie called on quantum physics called What the Bleep Do We Know? Uh, right. And um, those are both excellent movies in terms of this relatively new field of quantum physics. Um, which in effect is just, it's kind of like quantum physics being a field of infinite potential. But yeah, the gist of law of attraction is that the law of gravity, for example, um, it's funny because we know the law of gravity, that's something we observe, it's very predictable, but law of attraction is really more of a thought-based quote-unquote law. But it does say basically whatever we're giving our attention to, we will see more of. And so in a sense, every story becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, right. it really doesn't take my golfers uh, very long to realize that when they are in a optimistic, hopeful mood and they are standing there before a shot believing something good is about to happen for that mm-hmm. something good to happen, mm-hmm. nor do they know when they're in a bad mood and they're doubtful or they're skeptical or they're scared or anxious or whatever, that probably something not so good is about to happen. So so in effect, law of attraction is saying, yes, that, that we are attracting um, we're tracking the results in advance because of the thoughts and emotions that, that we're thinking and feeling. And that's what yeah. plays itself out physically uh, in front of our eyes. And, and the brain research, by the way, is supporting that too. The brain research is saying that, that really that we, we, um, we only see what we already believe is possible and real. And so, so we're kind of combining the fields of science and metaphysics in the same direction, saying that, that, you know, this whole idea of it's really a system of believing is seeing. If I believe it, I will see the proof. But if I'm waiting for the proof to establish my belief system, it, it, it can't get there because I'll never see enough good proof to, to you know, to, to really um, change to alter the belief system for very long. Yeah. And, and you know, when you going back to the students for a second, you know, this is something, um, you know, obviously that you have to work with your students to help them understand the importance of that. So give us a little bit of example. What do you do with Give us an example of how you work with a student um, in that area. How do you, um, you know, because obviously you get, uh, in addition to some of the, the better athletes, you get some non-athletes sure. that come out there that have maybe had years of, of you know, garbage ingrained into their system, um, thought processes and things like that. What do you do to sort of unwind and unravel that and, and get them into a more positive, yeah. so that, you know what I'm saying? 
Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. And it really is less of a process of going back and unraveling anything. Uh, and, and you bring up a great point because this is probably what makes this program uh, and what I share very different than, say, a traditional uh, sports psychology program in that we're really focusing more on accessing states of peak performance. Now, the way that the way that I do that is is in the um, the pre-shot routine is where it's all really set up. But for example, say for example, you're you're working on bringing the club head back more on plane. Well, what I would do is we would do that, of course. That's a that's a physical move. But what the work that I do is we also add an emotional component to that that would tap into that feeling of belief. So, so in other words, most players, when they're working on their mechanics and it's something new, if you were to ask them, and, and particularly the average amateur, it's like they're not just trying to bring it back, but, but it's like, ah, oh, darn it, I'm not doing it right. It's not good enough. Yeah. Why is it taking me so long? Um, you know, I'm trying really hard, and, and all they're doing is tensing up. So what we try to do is to work a positive emotion into that process with the idea that when the body the body will respond quicker and the learning process is much much more rapid when um, the emotions are in that optimistic space of can do rather than not good enough and so that's how we introduce all of this now the other thing being that if we get back to this thing of law of attraction that every story becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so right. when we when we stand there and we believe we can do it we will do it much quicker than when we stand there and we don't and and in a way it kind of doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out that you would think that yeah optimism would certainly get a lot further than with pessimism and doubt. Yeah, and and you know a, a lot of uh, you know the amateurs that might be tuning in tonight might hear this and think, well, you know that's you know you're, what you're talking about is positive thinking and uh, positive thoughts and and not being negative and, and and yes, it is to a certain degree what really we're talking about, but it's it's also a little bit more beyond that. It's not just about well, oh, I'm very much step, beyond that, right? You know, and, and I think right, that. You know, I think that people, you know, as I said, step up on the first tee and say, "Well, okay, I want to, I'm going to hit it down the center of the fairway," um, and then that's the only thought they have in their mind. They do it, and of course, it it shanks over here or it slices over there, sure. and sure. you know, so much for the positive thought. So right away, uh, that negative dialogue comes back into their head, and they they right. give up on it. It's a much more in depth process than that, correct? It 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 is very much more so, and you bring up a very good point. But at the same time. I would suggest that most of the people who do that and have that happen, it's almost like I go back to a story several years ago. I had a coach from Ohio, and he called me, and he'd worked with a really, really negative student. And, and the negative student came to this coach, and he says, Pat, he says, you know what? He says, um, uh, I went out this weekend, and I didn't throw one club, and I wasn't swearing very much, and, and I was really chilled. And he said, and I played like crap. Now, the kid... <laughs> had been in a bad mood for 10 years. And all yeah. of a sudden, it's like he just thinks that this is magically going to turn around um, in one weekend. It, the, the brain body doesn't work that way, much the same as you said. And it was kind mm -hmm. of interesting before, um, everybody wants the quick fix. Well, they also want the quick fix with the mind game, thinking that they right. can run garbage through their heads for 25, 30, 40, 50 years, and all of a sudden one little positive thought is going to, um, uh, you know, magically fix things. And, and here again, now we get back into this word called awareness. 
And I would almost guarantee you that they don't have the awareness or the acuity at that point to know that there's still a lot of negative chatter going on in their heads, no matter what they're telling themselves on the first tee or how positive. They may be more positive than they've been, but they're really not tapped into a a high degree of positive uh, expectation and belief. You know, and 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 I want to just add to uh, since you brought up awareness because it, it, I was sort of thinking of something here um, a few moments ago that I wanted to add, and and again this will hopefully for those tuning in will will understand some of the differences between um, the better players and and those of you that are still sort of working on your game, if you will. You know, a professional golfer when they're out on the golf course will always be aware of their surroundings. In other words, if there is a bunker over here or water or whatever trouble in there, they're aware of it, but they're not obsessed with yes. it. The, the amateurs Correct. become obsessed with it. Um, they're certainly Correct. aware of it because it's in their, um, you know, in their mind, but they become obsessed with it to the point where it actually cripples them um, yes. from making a good, a good golf shot. Um, so, the, you know, the, 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 you know, I'm sure Jim, when he was playing, uh, you know, a little while back there in the Houston Open, I'm sure was aware of whatever trouble uh, may be brewing, but it wasn't yes. constantly in the foreground uh, of his thought process. He, he knew when he stepped up the hole, okay, this is what I have to be mindful of, but then he got right back into his story, if you will, and focused on yes. what he needed to do. And suddenly, you know, the trouble wasn't uh, in that foreground anymore. It was now in the background because he'd already made his assessment and and uh, made the adjustments uh, accordingly to what he needed to do. Absolutely, and and I call it emotionalizing. They're they're not emotionalizing problems. It, it, yes, of course, you have to be strategic, and you have to notice water, and you have to notice out of bounds, and you have to notice all that stuff. But they're not they're not emotionalizing what they notice. It, it isn't a problem for them. It's just taking in data that it's kind of like, well, matter of fact, but, but you're right. The, the average amateur is like, oh, no, and the average amateur also is dragging in the past. You know, well, yeah, I was here, you know, every time I come to this hole and, and, and man, I always do this, and they're just dragging up, you know, stories that serve them no, that don't do them any good, but they're also adding a lot of negative emotion, which is really the energy that we work with is the emotional energy, they're emotionalizing it in a way that their body is just in this stress mode. And, and you know, no small surprises as to what unfolds. Exactly. Would you say this is a fair uh, assessment or a fair statement of what you do um, through your, your various workshops and, and clinics and, and seminars that really essentially what you're trying to do is help the individuals create a new story? Absolutely. Absolutely, but 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 to understand also, what's really important is to understand, and it's kind of like the analogy that I give mm-hmm. when when a song when a song pops in your head, for example, um, did you choose the song or did it choose you? Right, it's a great question, and really they come to the conclusion, well, no, the song just popped in my head, and so I didn't deliberately um, choose that song. Well, the same is true of a story. So, yes, we're trying to get them to change stories. So how do I find a better-feeling story? And it's just as true with stories that stories are really popping in our heads. We're not going and choosing the story. It's it's kind of coming there, and we notice it, and we say, oh, yeah, I, I like that story. So then we back up a little bit and we say, well, why did that story pop in my head in the moment that it did? And here's the key, is it pops in, every story pops in in response to 
your emotional frame of mind. When you are in a good mood, when you're in the zone, the only stories that will pop in your head when you're in the zone, which I do consider to be an emotional state of mind, the only Mm -hmm. stories that are going to pop in are those positive stories. And, And at the same time, when you're in bad mood, the only stories that you're inviting in are are the not happy ending stories. And so really, this is what is kind of so so much fun with the work is that just by managing the mood, we, we take care of 99% of the mind game. Really, we yeah. do by just, manage, by just managing emotions and the mood. And then the thoughts that we receive, uh, the stories that we receive, the stories that we notice – come in in accordance to the mood that we're in yeah you're exactly right and and you know there's there's i think everybody has triggers in their life you know when you're a child and something happens and and something triggers that memory um negative or positive and and essentially you know i think the professionals have have sort of mapped themselves out in such a way that when they come to a familiar hole let's say it automatically triggers um, the thought process that they need to be able to navigate around um, it, that, you know, that, as you said, the song pops in their head. Well, in their case, the story, uh, you know, pops in their head of how they're going to play that whole. And yeah. I, I think, I, I think what happened, you, you, you led to that. So I'm going to ask this as a question, of course um, you talked about in the zone. Let's, let's explain so that people truly understand. I know you did a little bit, but maybe a little bit more depth um, what it means by being in the zone. Yeah. <laughs> Because everybody has a different analogy of it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny because um, the athletes that I work with, all of them know what the zone is. And I guess that it's it's just like this blissful mind state that you go into when you're out there playing. And it's where where movement slows way down. Time, our concept of time slows way down. It's totally blissful. There's... There's not a lot of negative chatter. There's no negative chatter, really, and it's just it's just that it's just uh, this state that athletes uh, of euphoria that athletes die for. You know, this is this is like a, we know that on a on a scientific physical level, we know that when we're in the zone, the brain is actually slowed down into into what we call a state of alpha, whereas normally the brain is in a state of beta. Uh, beta being a lot of thought going on and thought impulses going on. Well, we're, when we're in the zone, it's like in Alpha, where it's La La Land, and, and yeah. it just athletes love it because there's no no critical energy, there's no um, th- there's none of that. And and what I do teach in the clinics uh, that I do is we can. This is this is probably this is a huge point to to really look at is most time I'll ask somebody how they got in the zone and they don't know. They just right. kind of slipped into the zone or whatever, but I'm here to tell you that with certain breathing techniques and whatever, mm-hmm. we can put ourselves into the zone more and more and more, and we can do it deliberately so that we're not waiting for the zone to come to us. We can get into the zone, but but the irony is you can't be angry or upset about your game and remotely hope to get in the zone. You have no. to be chilled. <laughs> You have to be in a positive state of mind. You have to be relaxed. You have to breathe. And when you do, you can slip into it quite easily and stay in it for, you know, extended lengths of time, periods of time. Yeah, I, I can probably say, Tim, with, with uh, most certainty and confidence that if anybody finds a way to get into the zone, given those uh, circumstances of anger and, and so forth, um, that you can give Tim and I a call because we'll be more than happy to pay for the patent <laughs> on that. 
Um, we'll, we'll put write, that in a we'll pill. We'll write a book on it. How, how yeah, we'll write a book or put it in a pill form or something yeah, or other. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. You, um, you know, it's it's interesting, and, and one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I guess as I get older, and I think we all do this. You know, when we're younger, we're in our twenties, we're a little, you know, cockier, and we just sort of uh, <laughs> go with the flow. But I think as we get older and obviously our maturity level rises, you start to take stock of things. You start to look at your life a little bit differently. And you realize that a lot of things that you did in your life, um, on and off the golf course, of course, um, sometimes they're a little foolish. Sometimes they're downright stupid. But (laughs) you start to understand – well, it's true. You start to understand that – it's not really that big of a deal. So what? You you know you lost right. this deal there. So what? You you know you didn't uh, right. break par this week. Whatever the case is, um, you know you, you have to be sort of happy in the moment. I think one of the things that I always try to stress when I'm working with um, you know a player, um, you know I do a lot of corporate stuff. So what I try to say to them as well, and they say, well, you know, how do I get into the zone and, and sort of thing. And it's like you said, it, it really, it, it, it's not something you can force. For instance, I'll give you a good example. No. Um, I believe it was Bubba Watson uh, when he won the last Masters. A reporter asked him because he strung you know, a few great holes together. And they asked yeah. him, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase this, of course. But he, they said to him, they asked him, you know, what were you thinking at the time? And he said, really nothing. Um, you know, there was no... You know, they were trying to draw out of him, you know, what was his thought process going from here to here and here. Right. And it was really nothing. He right. was in the zone. He got in a zone, and those yeah. holes were a result of him being in the zone. And he didn't think about anything. He wasn't really – I mean, I'm sure he had a swing thought here and there, but um, but he wasn't, you know, clouding his head with, with a bunch of thoughts. And I think the reporter was actually a little baffled by that because, you know, here the guy just sure. won the Masters. He had to be thinking about something. Right. And he just said, no, right. I was in the zone. I didn't really. It was just I was in such a comfort level and a relaxation mode that I was just enjoying it. Well, and, 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 I, and I, I, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, as I teach my players is that and we, I certainly work with them on different breathing techniques, but you cannot be focused on the breath, on actually noticing and actually being, here we come back to that word again, being aware right. of the breath. You can't be right. aware of the breath and a problem in the same moment in time. It's no. one or the other, but it's not both. So you want to get in the zone, focus on your breathing. You you want to not get in the zone, you know, get 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 pissy and and see where it gets you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I always I like to look at things in in such a way um, because I'll be I'll be quite honest, and I can I can probably bring on a thousand teaching professionals, coaches, whatever, even players on here on the show and ask them the same question. Um, but, you know, we hear the same questions from, from uh, handicap, you know, high handicappers all the time. You know, can you fix this? Can you do this? And it's always the same questions. And, you know, I give them the same answer. Yes, I can do that if you have the time and you're willing to put in the effort. Right. And a lot of people, right. well, I, you know, I wanna, I've got a, a tournament next weekend or something like that. Well, then no, I can't. Um, right. you know, I can give you, right. you know, I can give you a little bandaid, but the bandaid eventually is going to fall off and, right. you know, th- they just don't get it. They don't understand. And, you know, what people I think are under this, this misunderstanding that you have to, um, I think what it is to be honest, to, let me back up here. I think they're trying to compare themselves to what they see on television and think, well, I don't want to be a golf professional. I just want to get out there and play better. And they think that they've got to spend hours and days and weeks constantly on the range. And that's 
couldn't be further from the truth. I know players that have played at the highest level of golf that hardly ever go out to the driving range. Right. Well, Jim Herman, Jim Herman being one of them. He, he's not a practicer. He, he, he's not had. He's had a short game instruction, but he's never had a full swing instruction in his life. And he just gets out there and plays. And and that baffles people as to how he can do that. And <laughs> it just is is wonderful to see. His mind is so clear. He's not he's not thinking about how to. He's just thinking about what to do. Well, I think too, and, and and again, it's probably a generational thing. I think there's a lot of the the older school, if you will, of players that grew up like the Trevinos and that that went out to the range and you know beat a thousand balls a day. Uh, you know, Mo, Mo Norman talked about this, where he would go out and hit literally so many balls that he'd have blisters all over his hands. Um, right. And and it certainly worked for him at that time. But now there's so much information available out there to become a better player that you don't. I'm not saying you certainly don't need to go out and practice. But you need to practice with a purpose and not just hit balls hoping that some you know, miracle is going to fall from the sky and you're going to become a better golfer because it's not going to happen. Yeah, it, it doesn't. And, and here again, I guess i got to go back to you know, <laughs> what we work on very mindfully with a lot of awareness. But, but really, to me, it boils down to before this shot that I am about to hit, do I believe something good is going to happen or do I, am I doubting that something good is going to happen? And when it's all said and done, how the body moves and, and what we see in a shot boils down to that level of belief or disbelief. And and we don't really work on that very much. We don't work on confidence. We don't we, we give it lip service, but we don't really teach players how to access it. Or I'm only confident when I'm playing well, the ball's going where I want it to go, well, then I feel confident. And it's like, well, of course you do, but that's not the work. The work is how do I get the mind game out in front of performance, and that's really where the challenge is at. How, how do we establish states of belief when the ball isn't going where you want it to go, knowing that before very long it will rise to that new level of, of belief? Yeah, and, and you know, something else, too, that I, I think we need to point out here is, and, and this sort of falls under the, that internal dialogue and, and, of course, the power of thought, um, it's not just limited to the golf course. I mean, you can't have had a, a, a big, you know, brouhaha, if you will, with your wife back home right, and then drive right. off to the golf course and think that you're going to, you know, break par, um, right. you know, because you're, you're taking that with you um, in some form or fashion in, in, in your internal thought process, if you will, to the golf course. Well, there's a saying that I have that, that we take ourselves with us wherever we go, and, and that's exactly what mm-hmm. that means in that, in that um, you know, it's funny. I've got one of my guys, and, and I won't mention his name, but he was on, <laughs> he was on the wood.com for, for a year, but, you know, he, he, he worked very mindfully to be, to be very calm and focused and deliberate on the golf course, but then would get out in traffic and would just go into road rage. And yeah. it's like – you can't do that. It, it becomes this becomes a style of life and a way of living, and 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 don't expect to have the you know kind of areas outside of the golf course where you're just wild and crazy and unhappy emotions, and then think remotely that you're not going to bring that with you onto the course in some fashion. It it just doesn't you know doesn't work that way. Who who we are is who we are, and and so yes, this this does become. And that's really the neat thing here, Ted, is that is that when you work on the game from this standpoint, your whole life improves, and, and right. golf does too. 
it's not just, okay, get happy and don't care about the golf. That's not right. it at all. It's like get happy and just watch how every area of your life starts to just shine. And and that's the really exciting, fun thing about this coaching for me is that, you know, it's, sure, the golf improves, but but it's like everything. And the light bulb goes off, man, when I when I can be happier on the golf course or happier anywhere else. And, and I can certainly bring that into, you know, things don't bother me as much. And it's kind of like what you were saying about the golf shots. It, it turns into... You know, I just hit a bad shot, and it's like, yeah, whatever, okay, there's the next one, as opposed to just, right. oh, my gosh, it's just the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life, and, and you know, this drama that we just don't want to go there. Yeah, uh, well said. Um, you know, I, I just think that people have to look at um, golf in, in a, an entirely different way, and I'm referring to the amateurs. I think the professionals obviously have um, the added benefit of having the exposure to some great um, technology, not just uh, the physical technology, but um, you know some of the, sure. the different programs that are out there, like what you're offering and that. So let's let's run through that real quick. Let the folks know that they're tuning in here, where they can go and 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 get more information on what we've been talking about here tonight. We just sort of glossed over a lot of this tonight because uh, obviously for time uh, limitations. But um, you obviously have a, a, some great programs available, and uh, so how they can uh, how can they go about uh, getting more information? How can they go about getting in touch with you? Yeah, the best thing to do is to get onto the website, which is my spirit of golf, all one word, myspiritofgolf.com. Uh, I am at uh, I'm the peak performance mind coach now. Uh, in addition to my responsibilities with uh, Spirit of Golf, I'm the peak performance mind coach with Club Med Academies, uh, and so I work with all the sports there: tennis, golf, and uh, volleyball. And uh, I have workshops and clinics and stuff every every week now at Club Med Academies, which is in Port St. Lucie, Florida. It's kind of my mm-hmm. the home base now for uh, for Spirit of Golf. That's the best way to uh, to check into the program. And of course, my contact information is all on there, and sure. my phone number and things like that. And and um, we've got a fabulous book out called Skills and Drills, and and it really 18 chapters worth of uh, of very practical uh, skills that that anybody can use in terms of the mind game and, and refocusing and telling new stories and things like that. So highly recommend that as just, you know, a, uh, uh, kind of a, a simple way to, uh, to really start this, this process. And so, uh, would uh, obviously would love to hear from you or have you come to Florida and, and, and attend a, an event. Sounds good. Um, I couldn't have, um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Tim, you did, uh, as always, a fantastic job. I enjoy having you on the Coach's Corner panel for some discussion tonight. And I think, you know, hopefully those listening tonight have a little better understanding. Again, we, we kind of glossed over uh, some of the areas tonight, obviously for time uh, issues. But, uh, again, if you want to uh, get more involved and learn a little bit more about what we've talked about here tonight, you can go to uh, Tim's website, myspiritofgolf.com, and all of the information is very uh, eloquently laid out there. And uh, as Tim said, you can uh, you can get in touch with him there as well if you want to uh, get uh, in depth a little bit more. Um, it, the book is available now. You said, yeah, the book the book's uh, through the website or it's also on Amazon. And, and the one thing I, I I might like to add just in closing, Ted, is that sure. um, what's really important to me is that 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 the the clinics that we do they go beyond theory. And certainly we talked, we theorized a lot tonight in terms of the mind game and how it works, et sure. cetera, et cetera. But, but actually the clinics, we get out on the range and we assimilate these practices and these skills 
so that, that we just don't leave people hanging inside the head and that, you know, okay, we actually show them how this work is done in the routine, in the pre-shot routine, and, and during the swing itself and during the post-shot routine. And so uh, there's actual skill development that combines the, the, the mind stuff with the swing, and that's what really makes it a very powerful program. Very well. Uh, very well said. Thank you uh, again, Tim, as always, for, for coming on uh, the show. I, uh, again, I, I appreciate everyone that comes on and giving of their time. I know we're all busy, and it's not always easy sometimes to, to break away from schedule or, or family time. So I appreciate uh, uh, you guys doing this, and um, it, it means a lot to me. And I know that the audience enjoys uh, uh, tuning in as well. So, um, Tim, thank you. Have a great weekend, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks, Ted. Always a pleasure, and, and you have a great one too. All right. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest on the Coach's Corner panel tonight, uh, Mr. Tim Kramer. He's the president and founder of Spirit of Golf. And uh, as I said, he's a a peak performance coach and uh, consults uh, out of uh, uh, the Stewart, Florida area and also uh, part of the uh, Club Med uh, group as well, does some great uh, programs with them as well. So uh, definitely go to his website, myspiritofgolf.com. And uh, you can pick up some very useful uh, information as, as well. I got another great, uh, great guest coming on here. Uh, as I mentioned, she is a, uh, a golf historian, a writer, and a researcher. Her name is Claudia uh, Mazuko, and she's going to be coming on here in just a moment or two. But I want to remind everybody I forgot last week, um, got so involved in the conversation, uh, to remind everybody, of course, about the uh, Golf Talk Live uh, Major Champion Couples Contest. Uh, we're running a contest here. Uh, it was introduced on the Thursday eve of the Masters by uh, myself and my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, who is an international PGA member and instructor and son, of course, of the legendary uh, professional golfer, Billy Casper. And just to give you a quick rundown again uh, of the contest, um, what we're looking for you to do is to submit uh, to Golf Talk Live contest at gmail.com is the email that you submit it to. Go to uh, Golf Talk Live contest at gmail.com. And what we want you to do, the Masters, of course, has already passed, but you have the U.S. Open, the British Open, or uh, referred to as the Open Championship, uh, and, of course, the PGA Championship a little bit later on. And what we want you to do is, is uh, submit who you think is going to be the winner of any of those tournaments, who's going to be the ultimate winner. Uh, you have until the Friday midnight, the Friday evening of each of those tournaments. You can, go, you can submit up before then, of course, uh, but your entry must be submitted for any given tournament uh, and majors only, of course, uh, who the winner is going to be of that particular event. And if you're correct in your guess, then you'll be put in the pool, if you will, uh, for a future draw, which will take place the Thursday following uh, the PGA Championship, which is the final major of the year. And Byron, of course, uh, is going to be joining me uh, on that show as well. And we're going to uh, draw from the hat, if you will, who the winner is. And, and here's what you're going to win. Uh, you're going to actually have two free nights uh, at two different uh, locations. Uh, the first night is going to be at uh, Bed and Breakfast at the Hacienda Hotel in Old Town, San Diego. And included with that, uh, and again, it's a couples contest, so it's for two. Uh, it's golf for two at Salt Creek Golf Club. Uh, so you have a, an evening at the Hacienda Hotel and then golf for two uh, at the Salt Creek Golf Club. Then your second night, uh, you'll have also at a bed and breakfast at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa, and that will include also for the two of you, uh, golf for two at the Encina Golf Club. Uh, so you have two uh, great rounds of golf and two uh, at two great locations, and also two evenings, uh, one at the Hacienda Hotel and one at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa. 
And then uh, on one of those days, you're going to have an opportunity to have lunch at the Old Town Tequila Factory uh, in the San Diego area as well, uh, hosted by, of course, Byron Casper. Uh, he'll be hosting that there, and I think he's going to try to arrange a, a tour as well. Uh, and included in that, of course, he's going to include a copy uh, of his father's book, uh, his last book, uh, The Big Three and Me, which I have a copy of, and that talks about uh, Billy's journey through golf, uh, particularly playing up against Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, and of course, Mr. Gary Player, hence the big three. Uh, and the, the prize altogether, the value is just a little in excess of about $1,000. Um, we're hoping that uh, we have a, a good uh, couple that wants to, uh, to win that. So make sure that you submit your guesses. You've got three more chances here. Um, we've got some that already come in for the Masters. And uh, we want, uh, obviously, to encourage you to submit it. You've, you've got a great opportunity. Let me just remind you, of course, that that does not include airfare. So uh, you are responsible for the airfare and any additional expenses outside of what's uh, been allotted in the prize, so uh, gratuities and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, airfare is not included, but you'll have two free nights at uh, Bed and Breakfast at Hacienda Hotel in San Diego, in Old Town, San Diego, and Golf for Two at Salt Creek Golf Club. Uh, again, your second night, uh, bed and breakfast at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa and golf for two at the Encina Golf Club. Uh, lunch at the Old Town Tequila Factory, hosted by Byron Casper, and uh, also a copy of Billy Casper's uh, last book, The Big Three and Me. So uh, good luck, everybody, and I hope that you'll uh, uh, participate in the contest. We uh, look forward to uh, announcing that winner in a few weeks, and uh, we appreciate uh, all of those that have submitted so far. And as I said, good luck uh, on uh, on your chances and uh, I'll keep you up po- posted I'll try to uh, post that again of course through social media here uh, over the next uh, few months uh, to remind everybody to jump in on that contest so hope that you'll do that um, I, again I mentioned uh, just a moment ago uh, I've got another great guest coming on uh, her name is uh, Claudia Mazuko and she's a golf historian writer and researcher and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about uh, her background and uh, she's going to get into a little bit more and she's actually um, going to be talking about a book that uh, she edited uh, and was involved in called The Legendary Lessons, uh, 100 Teachings uh, from Some of the Greatest Golfers Out There, Walter Hagen, uh, and many, many more. We'll talk about that as well when she comes on. But uh, uh, Claudia, of course, was born in uh, September 24th, 1966, and actually she's from originally from uh, Santiago del Estero, uh, Argentina. She's a golf historian, writer, and researcher, as I mentioned. Uh, she also uh, has savant skills and has been diagnosed with classic autism. Um, very unique young lady. She went to school in, uh, went to school of journalism in Buenos Aires um, and graduated back in 1988. And a le- year later, at the age of 22, uh, she began working as a teacher of golfing history uh, for the PGA of Argentina. So we've got lots of great things to talk about. So without further hesitation, let me bring on my very special guest, Claudia Mazuko. Good evening, Claudia. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. Uh, good evening. Good evening, and, and, and thank you for joining me, Claudia. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Claudia, uh, let's start off. Um, I, I just read out a little bit of, because um, there's much more, obviously, to read out, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about um, a little bit of your background in Argentina, and I know you're, you're living here in Connecticut now in the United States, but just tell the audience a little bit about your, your background in golf uh, in, while you were in Argentina. Well, um, I clearly remember the, um, the first time that I, I saw a golf course. I mean, um, as a person with autism, 
uh, I have sensory integration issues. So um, I have very low tolerance tolerance of noises, all kind of noises. Mm -hmm. So I have made an, um, an, an habit of reading the buses for the sake of having a quite time for reading. So I also, um, I used to go to, for walks in a park, and one day I came across to the, I came across the Campo de Golf de la Ciudad, which is located in the middle of, of Palermo Park in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that very moment, my my love affair with golf uh, uh, begins. So um, I, I didn't know uh, much about this sport. So golf is not a very popular game in Argentina. So in, it was in the spring of 1987 that, that I went to the PC of Argentina and started reading the collection of El Golfer Argentino. This was a magazine which was a translation of the American golfers. So I still um, love the game now as much as I did when I first uh, saw Roberto De Vicenzo at the at the Argentine Senior Open in San Andres Golf Club in 1988. So that was the first tournament I ever attended. Mm. So like like the other professional golfers of his generation, Roberto was a caddy, and they were their own teachers. So De Vincenzo is one of the better known better known golfers in Latin America. There is no there is no other professional golfer in the world that has won as many tournaments as Roberto. Hmm. So um, so then, as you mentioned, I started teaching history of golf, uh, uh, and nineteen. 89. So um, that um, I also created the the whole historical database of the PCA of Argentina and the Argentine Golf Association. So I was I used to be the librarian at the at the Argentine Golf Association. So that is turning out to be a ten years job. So. Wow, and and let me just let me just uh, I want to read something else from from your bio because I, f I found it very interesting and I want to share it with the audience. Um, yes. For a number of years, I think for about six years, you actually traveled um, around to various major championships and assisting with the media credentials um, for some notable tournaments: uh, the Ryder Cup uh, from 1995, 97, and 99. Um, you also traveled uh, the U.S. Open in 1998, 2000, 2001. And of course, the um, the PGA Championship in '99 and 2001, and then the Open Championship, which was also referred to as the British uh, Open uh, back in 2000, 2001. And you actually received a, a uh, the PGA Award from the PGA of Argentina for your contribution to the Argentina Pro Golf. Um, yes, yeah, And you've you've been a journalist uh, for a number of years. Again, um, with uh, various magazines and that in Buenos Aires. And then also what was very uh, intriguing is, uh, you, as I mentioned in the monologue there, uh, or in the early part, you moved to the United States back in December of 2005, but you wrote um, with a gentleman by the name of Max Adler uh, the story of how golf really saved you from um, severe autism, and it was featured in the Golf Digest in, in uh, July of 2013, and you provided me with a link, which I'm going to put up on my um, social media a little bit later on, but um, how did golf 
help you um, with with, uh, with autism? What was specifically about it, or did you learn um, that was able to help you through some of the, your difficult times? I I use the the game as a brain as a brain healer. Mm-hmm. So I learned that um, a person that who is able to concentrate and focus can do almost um, anything. So besides focus and concentration, I think that people with autism and golfers have also other things in common. Um, one is that we are both visual thinkers. And two, we pay more attention to details. So I think in, I think in pictures that are like videotapes in my imagination. Right. Golfers, golfers also understand concepts visually. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I mean the the I think that the swing of golf take less than two seconds to happen. So it is impossible to remember to right. remember to remember what you have to do. So you simply visualize the swing and follow through. So I think that we have we, we have a lot of common um and um and that is why it happened that I fit right in in golf, no? Hmm. You know, yes. Yeah, that very that, 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 Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was saying that this is this is the way that golf helped me um besides the fact that um as I say a person with autism usually think in pictures and when I started to connect with the game, I started to read magazines uh, like uh, not, also, not only the American Golf or Golf Illustrated, but also modern magazines like Gold Dishes, which are uh, this, this magazine are basically made by pictures. Pictures right. of the swing or, uh, that show how to play a game. Uh, so it was uh, the, the picture that helped me to to create a sequence a sequence of thoughts in my brain, I start to learn the game and even I I learn English by myself reading cold dishes. So, oh wow! So, yeah, yeah, I I educate myself in the language in 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 my second language by by reading the magazine by reading by reading cold dishes. Wow. That's 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 that. Listen, that's uh, that's a, a an incredible accomplishment to uh, to to do that. So that's a that's a credit to to Golf Digest for for helping you to uh, to understand a little better the the English language. So they 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 need to uh, um, you know take note of that. Let me just point out one other thing, and then I I want to get into the the book. I've got some questions for you about your book uh, that you've yes, you've introduced. Um, but uh, also during your your a period of about nine months or so. Uh, you worked as a researcher for Back Nine Network, who many of the people tuning into the show will know who I'm talking about. In fact, they published a number of uh, articles uh, back in 2014, um, yes. and then we'll get into the book and that. Um, so you've written a lot of articles for, for different uh, folks out there in the golf industry and that. Give us an idea, just a, a very short idea, some of the types of articles that you were writing. I have, in Argentina, I have writing uh, for almost every every magazine that is was published um about golf during the nineties. Um I started writing in, in Naughty Golf. Uh, 
first covering covering um, the national tournaments of the Argentine Golf Association, and mm-hmm. then I started to to make interviews um, with players, uh, and then I went um, into history of golf. I mean, in the in the end, I started to I become I become an, an expert in history in history of golf. So basically, um, right now I am doing research and writing about about, about the history of the game, the champions, um, mm. and its tournaments. I to, it's like the majors, <laughs> the tournaments, right. the majors. Right. Now, when you uh, you always do a lot of research for your books, and and I want to ask you, what made you decide to write? the book or or pen the book legendary lessons which features some great players i mentioned walter hagen bobby jones uh, harry varden and grantland rice just to name a few um what was the reasoning uh, why did you decide to write that uh, you know pen that particular book what was it about the the stories that you uh, have in the in the chapters um why did you write that book yes original uh, this book is 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 like plan b <laughs> so um, oh, okay I yeah, I am not I am not an instructor or or a PCA tour player. So I am a teacher of history of golf. Right. So I so I I always try to teach from the point of view of art and creativity. So since that I moved to since I moved to United States ten years ago, I wanted mm-hmm. to write an anatomy of the creativity in golf, seen mm-hmm. through the through the game of. Hagen, Sean, Hogan, Sneed, Palmer, Niklaus, and Severiano Ballesteros. So I think that is is going to be it was going to be something like Creating Minds, which is a book written by Howard Garner. So, but um, anyway, uh, so far I couldn't I couldn't uh, write uh, write this book, um, and I started to uh, so I slowly. I started to I began to explore the American golfer and golf illustrator at the digital library collection of Los Angeles eighty four foundation. So and right. then I created a, a page I created a page on Facebook, the art of playing golf. And part of learning to update this Facebook page, which which is in the subject of golf history and instruction, right. I learned to entertain my, my followers. So uh, so I gradually started exercising different ways to present these time, timeless teachings to modern golfers. Mm-hmm. So um, so also in my um, my page become a forum for the theories that I had learned from Roberto Di Vincenzo and the American golfer um, writer. So eventually I came to redefine my goals and priorities to which legendary lesson uh, was the first example of a new of a new style. So, um, so perhaps, perhaps that is the beauty of the American dream. There is always a new beginning, no matter no matter where right. you come from. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, yeah, and it's like playing a golf course. Every every new course is a different a different uh, another opportunity. Um, you know, at a new game. So it you know just because one game ends um, another one can begin so you know it kind of falls along with that how long um, Claudia did uh, did it take you to do the research and put this book together what what kind of a time frame was involved in in organizing your thoughts for um, for legendary uh, lessons 
three years. Wow. I think that three years, yes. I started by asking permission to reprint to to the American Golfer and Golf Illustrated because this is the first things that I needed. Um, and um, Legendary Lesson is a, is a unique selection of stories and teachings based on the collections of the American Golfer and Golf Illustrated. So um, it, it took me um, three years to put all the, all the teachings uh, and the stories together. So I tried to to avoid reference to a purely technical description of the swing and principles conflicting with modern practice. Uh, right. For example, the, at the time, they they played golf with hickory clubs. Right. So I am, I am nothing like an expert, but this type of club required a different swing. Mm-hmm. And swing principles for hickory clubs are not relevant today. So they right. are strange and unfamiliar for modern golfers. So I try to avoid... Um, I try to avoid avoid specifically this kind of this kind of of entries. So, uh, but but to me the stories the stories seem to offer a view of golf that is different from what we see today on television or reading modern on modern golf magazine. So, what um, course, now? Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, no. Please go ahead. Finish your thought. No, no, I say that, that this was the the roaring twenties. So I mean right. uh, so I uh, as as seen from the from the golf course by toes on the pro shops by former caddies, more of them were high school dropouts than college graduate. So and they had to teach the game. So right. uh, the principles of the game were not spoken at the time. So they were uh, fixed in the muscular memory by Im- images at constant repetition. Right. So, um, so um, it was an ed- educational experience for me to discover how how little true, uh, how little is truly new in golf. No. <laughs> mm, yeah. Now, when you when you looked at when you did your research, um, Claudia, on some of these, um, you know, players that obviously most are, or probably most of them are not with us any longer, but players like uh, Hagen and, and Jones and, and Vard and so forth, when you researched a lot of these and you sort of went through some of the different teachings um, that you've put in your book, what do you see, what was it that they did differently back then um, from what you see today? There's obviously a difference between the modern game besides you know the clubs and things like that, but um, – what was some based on your research? What were some of the differences between what you saw then and the way that they looked at golf than the way they do today? Was there a big difference? Do you think, or is it pretty much the same? The principles of the game are always the same. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, golfers uh, trust more. Uh, uh, more in, right now, modern golf is more technological and technical than it was in the time of Walter Hagen, of course. Mm-hmm. But fund- fundamentally, um, the, the 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 principles the, the principles are basically are are basically the, the, the same. I mean, they used to they didn't use television or video, so they were more um, 
it was more um, the like feel. To play. It, it was exactly it, exactly golf was an it was an art and no science at the time. So it was more than feelings and imitation and images. Um, there were no uh, they 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 didn't they didn't they didn't like to practice, and also they didn't have uh, gurus or or personal trainers, no. Right, right. They, right, they yeah. had the different, yeah, the different trainers and things like that. Um, uh, and I know you can't get into all the specifics, Claudia, but um, just maybe give us an example or two out of the book um, on some of the stories. Um, what were some things that that maybe you found extremely interesting? Um, I'm sure a lot of it, but that was particularly interesting to you. What were some of the some of the stories that were very interesting to you when you were putting this book together? Well, I was fascinated by Walter Hagen. I see, I see sometimes I wonder what was what what is like watching uh, Walter to play golf. So I think that uh, he combined all the things to make a real great golfer. Mm-hmm. Skill, power, endurance, will to win, a sport machine, and defeat or victory. But what is amazing about him and I can't explain how he did pull it off. Is his attitude toward the game? Right. He played. He played whatever shot took his fancy, you know, with, with a sense of freedom to accept whatever happened on the golf course. Mm-hmm. A, a ball, a ball that goes out of bounds, out of the golf course, or a hole right. in one, or a 63, he, a 63, or an 82. I mean, um, he was. Um, he won, you, you know that he, Colter Hagen uh, won five PGA championships when the uh, five PGA championships when the when the championship just started. Right. Um, and um, <laughs> his three win, his three victory on the PGA championship of 1925 was his seventh professional major, and he tied at the time with Harry Bardon. So by by the beginning of the thirties, I mean Walter had won more championships and open tournaments than any other uh, American, no? So he was also someone who enjoyed the good things in life. Didn't write his own theory of golf. Right. So um, his own theory of golf, but he didn't create a systematic philosophy of how to play the game. So I would like I would like to I would like to invite the golfers to look at the autobiography of Walter Hagen, how he played the game, what he won, what he sought, not for the sake of being entertaining, but being able to learn from him. Right. Um, do you think is there a golfer today, um, Claudia, that you see? Um, that kind of reminds you a little bit of some of the golfers that you wrote about in the book? Is there a golfer that's out there today in, in modern days um, that that when you see them, it kind of reminds you a little bit of some of the information that you read on, on some of the golfers that you've written about in your book that kind of mimics a little bit, you think? Not at this moment, but it's because it Severiano Ballestero was pretty much like Walter Hagen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Se- yeah, I would agree with that. I think Sevi Ballesteros was um, very closely mimicked a lot of the the legends of the game. 
Um, why did you particularly – what was it about those legends, like uh, not just the specific players, but that time period that, that um, the specifically – why did you decide to write about those specific players as opposed to maybe more modern-day players? What was, what was the interest, do you think, um, in writing that about them as opposed to some of the golfers today? So I think that um, actually, actually, I keep uh, I am planning I am planning to keep um, to keep uh, writing about uh, the golfers that came after Walter Hagen, like the American Triumvirate that like, of Ben Hogan, uh, Sam Snead, and um, Byron Nelson. I I like to to make a comparison uh, of their ideas with the ideas of of Walter Hagen or or the ideas um of Bobby Jones who was another another um who was a contemporaneous of, of Walter Hagen. So as I say as I as I say before I don't think that there is um there is too much difference between the way the way that um that they play the game uh all, all the champions, all the champions have, have common characteristics that it didn't change. I see that what changed basically is the is the mental attitude. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to criticize, but I mean, um, even uh, the the things that uh, modern golfers sometimes got into troubles and right. they cannot figure out how to get out, and that yeah. is not something. <laughs> That is not something that um, that uh, these greatest champions would have done, even when they had their, their disasters too. <laughs> but um, the, the mental attitude toward the game, I think, that is, the, is the biggest difference between one generation and the and the other. No? Do you, do you think that the players of that time, like like Sam Snead and you know Walter Hagen and Harry Varden and, and those? Compared to today's golfers, do you think that today's golfers um, there's more emotion uh, involved in their play? Like, in other words, the the players of of that time frame that you wrote about in the book, do you think that they were less emotional uh, in their play? In other words, they, things sort of rolled off their shoulders. They didn't get uh, as as upset. Things didn't bother them as much when they were out in the golf course um, than some of the players today. Is that kind of what you were talking about? They have a very different attitude, and I think that is partly because they were able to play all kind of. They were able to use their creativity when they were in trouble. Um, so today, to, today, um, the game is more mechanical, and right. and sometimes, sometimes more, sometimes. Um, when they were they when they are not able to get the ball into trouble immediately it is kind that they give gave up uh with all the with all the the traumatic situation that happened after that no? mm. yes so yeah i i i agree and we've we've talked about this on the show before many times that um even with some of the amateur golfers out there they're more focused on you know, having the perfect golf swing. Um, and if you look at some of the players uh, that you've written about in the book, if you look at their golf swing compared to some of the modern players, it looks, um, you know, there's certainly key elements, of course, that have to be there. But 
they are very different in their look. The, the players like like Sam Snead and Walter Hagen and Harry Varden and, uh, and uh, Grantland Rice, their swings seem to be very smooth and effortless, where now it's almost like you see um, the players are very almost robotic in their in their golf swings. Do you see that as well when, when you uh, yeah. were doing the research? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, I think that modern golfers can learn a very a very practical uh, way to to play the game. Uh, so I think that um, the foundation for uh, good golf, uh, the basis from which we want to begin practices the game, uh, Walter Hagen used to say that was the pattern. So um, they, I think that they they invited us us to look at the obstacles that prevent golfers from improving the game. So mm-hmm. I think that together together the various the various entries that I gathered make a series of teachings. So and stories if you like. Um when I was uh, selecting these stories, um I had only one principle in mind. So keep it simple. Right. Keep it simple keep it simple and stay aggressive, Rory McElroy will say today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, it it just, yeah, I think it seemed, and and, and I'm only going because obviously I wasn't born in the 20s, but, you know, when I look at uh, footage, uh, you know, old films or or what have you, or or, uh, read articles about some of the players back then, they also had a lot more charisma, I think, too. I think some of the the players of that era, um, you know, they obviously didn't have endorsement deals and things like to the extent that they do now. Um, but they just seem to have, a, 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 there was an aura about them. And I think that's what has to this day, why so many of them are still talked about um, with a fascination is because they're, it's almost kind of like, uh, you know, looking at Frank Sinatra, you know, and Dean Martin and, and that sort of era is there was a certain style and a class and, and just a, an aura about them that was very appealing and you know now when you see and again I'm not criticizing the players either I mean it, times are different but when you look at the players today everything just seems to be it, it's it's more rehearsed it's more polished um, it, it doesn't seem to flow naturally it's it's very unnatural or unnatural excuse me um, uh, I don't know if you agree with that or not but do you know what I'm saying yes yes I understand no, I think that the, the Ruari 20s um uh, which has have also been called called the golden age of sport, um, mm-hmm. where the where was the most exciting um, creative period in the in the history of golf. I mean, and um, anyone anyone who wanted to theorize uh, to have a theory about the about the swing uh, could do so and and put and put his ideas uh, to a gathering of players in the locker room. Right. I think this is this is missing today. Um, they didn't know how the swing should be done, and haven't yet become uh, particularly uh, entrenched in a in a in a particular method. So nothing was wrong for them because they didn't know what was was right in the swing of golf. Right. So I mean, yeah, the, I think that the only idea that they did the, that could not be questioned was that uh, grip the swing and swing the club. No, grip, grip the swing, sorry. Grip the club and swing it all the way. Uh, 
So right. never, never uh, Harry Bardon used to say used to say never make a hit with a club head, swing it, right. swing the club head. So yeah, and and that's what I meant when I said earlier that you know when you look at players from that era, their golf swing was very fluid. Uh, and, and effortless. I mean, they swung, and the, basically, as, as people have said over time, the golf ball basically got in the way of the club face. Um, whereas today, yeah. you know, when you look at a lot of the players, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, the modern swing is, is very, um, very good. They're hitting the ball farther than that. Some of that, of course, is, is te- uh, technology and equipment. But it, it's not, you don't see a lot of players, maybe like a Freddie Couples or an Ernie Els. Um, do you really see a lot of fluid motion? Um, it's very, when you look at most of the players out on tour, um, their swings are very, um, I don't want to use the word organized, but they don't look free flowing. It's, it's very, um, regimented almost and, and robotic is the way, uh, Nick Faldo comes to mind as well. Nick Faldo, of course, was a great ball striker, but his, by his own admission, he was very robotic in his golf swing compared to some of the, the older players that, that you mentioned in your book. Now, you said you're, you're working on another book, sort of a follow-up, if you will, with um, some other players beside the ones you wrote in this book. Uh, tell us again who those players are that in the book you're working on now. Um, they are um, Ben Hogan, um, Stan Sneed, and Byron Nelson. I, I am working to to put their teachings together. I think that in, um, um, you know that uh, probably um, Ben Hogan has written the greatest bestsellers in golf. Pro- yeah. Probably the, the only book that you, 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 will, you will need to, to learn the game that is the five fundamentals. Right. Um, but I, but I don't try to, to reproduce this book, but I try to to present Ben Hogan under a, dif- under a different light and summarize his philosophy of the game along with the philosophy of of his greatest contemporaneous that, that were um, uh, Byron Nelson and Sonny Sneed. Uh, Sonny Sneed in particular is a very interesting character who also theorizes mm-hmm. about the game a lot. So I am working. I am working, and, and I also, of course, don't forget that they were not alone in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. That they were whole generations of of players like Karimidilikov, like um, Paul Russian, uh, like Julio Boros, uh, mm-hmm. and, and international players like Peter Thompson, Bobby Luke. Right. So, so that was another fantastic uh, time uh, for golf to grow up all around the world. No? That, that was the time when Roberto De Vincenzo, my Argentine mm. uh, idol, <laughs> started right. to play the game and to, and to travel to to play the British Open. Hmm. Now, Claudia, let me ask you, uh, are you planning uh, in the future to um, – maybe do a book or, or something and include some of the great women golfers, um, you know, maybe like a Nancy Lopez or, um, uh, you know, Annika Sorenstam is more modern, but maybe some of the older players, uh, Kathy Whitworth, there's a lot of great female players. Um, are you planning at maybe sometime in the future 
um, maybe doing some writings about some of the, the, the really famous or well-known uh, female golfers uh, that grew up in the LPGA. Yes, of course. Uh, actually, I forgot to mention that, that my book, Legendary Lesson, uh, contains many teachings uh, written by women, <laughs> women oh, golfers. Okay. All the time, yeah, like like Joyce Waterhead and Glyn Corit Barrett. Um, so yes, yes, of course, of course. In my in my research, women are also include. I mean, um, so I mean they have a lot to say about about the about the, the golf, and they are more uh, practical than than men in player the game. They have a lot of. Uh, they have a, a very particular and interesting philosophy that I would like to also, of course, I would like also to 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 use in my in my next book. Yes, of course, yes. Um, very yes, good. I mean, and the time at the time that I was mentioned, the time of Ben Hogan, you know that uh, the um, the circuit of professional women golfers started something that was in 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so, that's right. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah. I, yeah, well, that's well, I, that's good because you know, with with the with the growth of of women's golf now, um, I, I think it would be very interesting from a from an historical standpoint to really allow because you know, obviously, some of the young players that you see out in the LPGA now probably, I mean, they certainly know who Nancy Lopez is and and some of the other, um, you know players that are still, you know, alive today in that, but there's a lot of women golfers who were pioneers in their own right, much like the men were in helping to start, um, you know, even start the LPGA that a lot of these young girls may not know who they are. And it's good to have a little history as well. Um, where, you know, where they're concerned and, and somebody that they can relate to, uh, and, and draw inspiration from. So that's good. Um, so the, the book that you're working on now with, uh, you talking about Byron Nelson, Sam Snead, and some of the others, um, are you just starting that now, or are you partway through it, or when do you when when is that going to be uh, available uh, for print? I don't have yet the publication date. <laughs> oh, okay. So that are, is it just have you just sort of started it now? Like is it in its early stages, or are you sort of maybe halfway through, or where do you think approximately? It is almost done. I mean, oh, okay. I, I have I have an incredible uh, material uh, to choose from, so I am trying to I am trying to be very selective in sure in 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 the in the teachings that I am going to include. They are they are material that um, that um, you know that the lessons of of Ben Hogan were first published by. Life magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Life, Ma- Life magazine has also published many, many articles uh, written by by Sunny Sneed um, that I think nobody has um, has read from in 50 years unless. So I think that this will be very interesting for the for the modern golfers to learn a little uh, a little bit more uh, of. Of Sunny Sneed, what he thought about the game, that is is really um, really interesting. Yeah, you know who who is um, there's a couple of players that come to mind who are very interested uh, in in the, the history of golf more so I mean than than some of the modern players. But uh, Ben Crenshaw um, was a player who was very fascinating, and Tom Watson was another one. But I remember um, years ago an interview that Ben Crenshaw did on the Golf Channel when 
the Golf Channel was in its earlier stages, um, he talked about how he was really considered himself a golf historian in his own right. Uh, he had many of the, the old books, if you will, that were written years ago and uh, really, you know, was very nostalgic for him. Uh, and he talked about that throughout his career, how he, it was important for him to not just get out and play on the tour and, and you know, work on his game, but he, he wanted to sort of keep the history of golf alive. And, and, and so I, I like, you know, the fact, Claudia, what you're doing uh, in, in, in putting these books together is essentially you're keeping those memories of, of people that have come before the current players now, their stories, because they do have a lot of information that's valuable that some of the, the younger players today and future generations uh, can draw from, from their experiences. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of open creation, I mean, um, you know that uh, Harvey Bennett was his teacher and coach. Yes. And one of the things that um, when I just learned in English, the, one of the first things that I, I did was to 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 read, to begin reading Harvey Bennett's Little Red Book. Now uh, again, now in its original language. Uh, Bennett had an outstanding ability as a common sense teacher, right. and, and he he actually took many of his notes from the golden from the golden age of a sport. Right. Also, also yes. Uh, also, Bennett used to remember that uh, the the rounds that he played with Walter Hagen or Byron Nelson. So, hmm. so he's the the food the. The teachings, the teachings, the all the stories, and um, that uh, Walter, uh, Walter uh, Harvey Penning wrote in his little red book uh, came from 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 teachings that he he heard and listened uh, during the during the thirties, during the time of, of Walter, of Walter Hagen. Right. Yeah. And he and I remember, um, as you said, Ben Crenshaw and that and Tom Kite, of course, was another student of his as well. Um, And and they they spoke very highly of. And I remember uh, during I think it was the night. Don't quote me on this, but I think it was the 94 Masters that Ben Crenshaw won. I believe that was the one that he the last one that he won. Um, And that was around the time that uh, Harvey Pennock, of course, passed away. And uh I believe, and again, don't quote me on the date, but I believe it was in 1994 that Ben Crenshaw no. won that tournament. No, what 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 year was it? Do the you next remember? year. The next year. 95. The next year, 1995. Yes. Yeah. yeah I that's mean, right. Penick, Penick, Penick died on April 2. Yes. 1995. That was right. a Sunday. That the Sunday before of the Master. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Ben Crenshaw and Ben Crenshaw came from Augusta from Augusta to the funeral. So and then he went to win the green jacket that week. So that yeah. was a, that was a, that was an incredible emotional story. Yeah, he he was very uh very emotional. I remember that and uh you know he he uh like you said he he traveled back and forth. He went to the funeral of course and then he uh came on and went on to win the the green jacket but um so let let the listeners know. Let's um let's get to the uh to the final part here. Where can the listeners get a copy of your book? Uh is it available in hardcover as well as a, a like a is it available like in an ebook uh for somebody that has like a uh on Amazon or or something like that? Where can they uh, or um uh, like a Nook or something? Where where is it available? Yes, it is available in in hardcover and ebooks in Amazon. It is in Barnes and Nobles. 
I think that it is in every place where book are sold. <laughs> okay. Yes, but you can you can find this uh, in in I mean by by going to Amazon is there. I mean, and also so you you can uh, um, access to the website of Partners and Noble. It is there too. So and and another website uh, too. In other places uh, that 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 sell books online. It, it is it is available everywhere, right? Actually. Okay, perfect. And it's uh, of course legendary lessons, and uh, it's as I said, it's featured some great. Uh, here's just a few of them: Walter Hagen, Bobby Jones, Harry Varden, and uh, Grantland Rice. And and who are a couple of the the ladies that you have in the book? Just to to mention them. Oh, of course, uh, Vivian Doran, uh, Glenn Corit Barrett, and Choice Guetteret. That Choice Guetteret was was uh, according to Bobby Jones the greatest golfer he ever saw play in the game. <laughs> oh wow, well that's yeah, that's that's a great compliment from uh uh from Bobby Jones for sure. Um was, you know, there's a well, even to this day I believe uh Kathy Whitworth has still won more tournaments than any of the men on the on the PGA here in the United States. Um she still I believe holds the record of uh, the most PG uh, most uh, tournament wins um if, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, yeah. and you know, she was a, a great lady. And I actually have interviewed her uh, on uh, another program that I do on Tuesday mornings uh, called The Women of Golf with LPGA professional Cindy Miller. And we, she was actually our very first guest. And she was very, very nice, very humble. And a lot of people had some great things to say about her. So um, maybe, uh, maybe in a future book you'll, you'll uh, write something about Kathy Whitworth. And she's just very well loved throughout um, – uh, throughout the LPGA Tour, and of course she now plays from time to time on the Legends Tour uh, for the women. But, um, but uh, well, Claudia, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the show tonight and, and sharing uh, some of the history of golf. And uh, I, I know that the uh, the audience will enjoy it. And I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me um, on social media and asking to come on and, and share this. And and uh, I hope that when your when your next book is ready, that you'll you'll reach out again. I'd love to have you come back on and, and talk about that book, some of the other players uh, that you're writing okay, in your new it book. My, it will be my pleasure. <laughs> well, I appreciate it again. And, and Claudia, good luck. And you know, one final question I want to ask you. Um, do you play golf at all? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you're just going to, you're just going to write some great stories about golf and, and leave the golfing to, to uh, some of the professionals. I, I don't blame you one bit. Um, Claudia, thank yes. you very much. It, it truly has been an honor to have you on the show tonight. And, and again, thank you for reaching out. And, and uh, you let me know when, when the next book is, is ready, and, and uh, I'll have you come back on again and, and talk a little bit about that book. Okay, thank you very much, very, very much. You're very, very welcome. Have a great evening, and uh, I, will, I will talk to you soon. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Claudia. Bye-bye. That was my very special guest, uh, Claudia Mazzucco. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I said, she's a... Um, uh, golf historian and writer, and, and of course, as you heard through the conversation, a researcher, uh, originally from uh, Argentina and, and uh, has moved here uh, back in, I believe, 2005, now lives, resides in the Connecticut area. And uh, very, very interesting, um, written a lot of uh, of the teachings, as I mentioned. Her book is called uh, Legendary uh, Lessons and from some of the, the best golfers uh, from in around the 20s, uh, roaring 20s, as she put it. And just a lot of very interesting stories. So I suggest that you uh, go on to Barnes & Noble if you haven't already. It's been released this year uh, or also on Amazon.com. 
and uh, just type in uh, legendary lessons and uh, by by Claudia Mazuko and uh, it's definitely a, a worthwhile read and uh, you'll get lots of very uh, insightful information and uh, some great stories and it sounds like obviously it took her a while to, to put everything together but it sounds like she uh, put a lot of time and effort into to doing this so uh, please uh, reach out and and um, and uh, get a copy of the book and make make a great uh, gift for somebody uh, maybe for Mother's Day or or even Father's Day It'd be a great book uh, a great great gift idea for for somebody or a birthday um, for that uh, for that special golfer in your life but anyways um, again thank you to my my guest tonight uh, Tim Kramer and Claudia Mazuko thank you very much for joining me on Golf Talk Live and um, don't forget to join in on the uh, Coach's Corner or excuse me the Golf Talk Live uh, Major Champions. Uh, couples contest uh you can email golf talk live contest at gmail.com who you think is going to win um the upcoming majors that are left this year the u.s open is going to be coming up here before you know it uh the open championship of course uh, formerly the british open and also the pga championship coming up a little bit later as well uh, towards the end of the summer uh submit your entry into the contest who you think is going to win uh, any one of those tournaments you have until the Friday evening of each of those events uh, to midnight uh, Friday evening um, to submit for that particular tournament. Uh, but you can submit for all of them right now if you want and email it to golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. And uh, for every correct entry uh, that you submit, you're allowed one per, per tournament. Um, so I would suggest that you do them individually. That gives you three more chances. Um, but for every correct one you get, uh, that will be put into the hat. And as I said, uh, my good buddy, Mr. Byron Casper, uh, son of the late uh, Billy Casper, uh, legendary golfer, of course, uh, he will be joining me the week, the Thursday after the PGA Championship, and we'll draw uh, the winning name uh, couple from there. And uh, you'll have a, a great opportunity to go to the San Diego area and uh, stay at a couple of uh, very fine bed and breakfast uh, and uh, also play some some great golf for you there as well um so please uh, enter the contest and spread the word around thank you of course to all of you the listeners faithfully uh, for tuning in from all over the world uh, tuning into golf talk live each week uh, as i mentioned every time i do draw a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches and teaching professionals authors like uh, claudia and other entrepreneurs stop by, and it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. A special thank you to some of the sponsors and supporters of the program, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Uh, go to southcoastgolfguide.com and uh, request your copy of the guide. Uh, great publication, been out for over 20 years now. Uh, Jonathan's been uh, working hard and putting that together uh, with some great golf courses in the southeastern part of the United States, from Texas right over to Florida here. Um, a lot of great courses in there, some information how to contact them, and just a little bit about the course as well. Um, so make sure you go to southcoastgolfguide.com and request your copy uh, of the guide. And also check out the website, southcoastgolfguide.com. A lot of great information, some specials on there as well from some of the courses that he uh, has in his publication. Uh, you may be able to get on uh, a little cheaper tee time, so uh, check out southcoastgolfguide.com. Meredith Kirk, uh, as always, thank you, Meredith. She'll be coming on here in a little over a month's time. Uh, Meredith, of course, is a great teacher professional in the Myrtle Beach area, uh, also involved with the Endless Golf uh, Myrtle Beach magazine. And she was also the uh, 2014 Mrs. South Carolina uh, winner and went on to also compete in the Mrs. USA uh, pageant as well. 
uh, Nikki and Tiffany Lithman, a great uh, teacher professional, great professional, uh, Nikki Lithman and his wife, uh, Tiffany Lithman. Thank you very much for helping to spread the word about the program. I uh, appreciate it always. And uh, Mr. Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf. He's the uh, co or founder and owner of OnticGolf.com. A uh, great uh, line of uh, customized uh, uh, putters. Make sure you go to OnticGolf.com and, and uh, get uh, your putter. It's uh, certainly well well worth the uh, the money, and uh, it's customized to uh, to your specifications. So uh, check out OnticGolf.com. Mr. Sean Kelly, owner of LinkedGolfers.com. Uh, thank you for all your continued support as well. That's LinkedGolfers.com. Uh, is his website and Mr. Peter Doyle. Last but not least, my good buddy, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you for all of your uh, continued support as well. Uh, again, thank you guys for tuning in uh, this Thursday evening. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the show. We'll be back next Thursday at 6 p.m. Central right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless and everybody have a great week.